This is the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN. Hello, 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 hello. On this Wednesday, 22nd day of June 2022. What is going on, everybody? Dan Grosser back with you here again on the one and only 98.7 ESPN. 800-919-3776. That is the telephone numbers. We get ready to take you up until 10 o'clock. Larry and Gordon will slide in. At that time, Jacob Perry, Brian Mungia, they are at the controls producing the program this evening on a busy Wednesday here in the world of New York sports. As always, you can get me on Twitter at Dan Gross, G-R-A-C-A. Had a little afternoon baseball today involving one of the two locals. Not a good one for the Mets. Fall again in Houston by the score of 5-3. to three. So two up, two down, and the Mets can't get out of Houston fast enough after the way these last two games unfolded for them. And look, I understand it's against an American League team. It's not a team that you're competing for a playoff spot against, but you'd like to have a little bit better of a showing than what you saw here over the last couple of days. Now, I do like the fact that after they found themselves down 4 nothing in that first inning, they were able to scratch and, you know, get their way back into it. They had the tying run at the plate a couple of times in the game tonight. Dom Smith, who's, you know, fresh up from the minor leagues, he ultimately left some guys on base, and Mets didn't have a lot of chances, but, you know, they still had a couple of cracks. Eduardo Escobar fanned as well when he had an opportunity to maybe do some more damage, but they come up a couple of runs short, and I guess the only thing that that bothers you about the fact that they couldn't steal one of these games or take one of these games is that the Mets were able to avoid Justin Verlander in this series. You know, even though it was only a brief two-game series, but you didn't go up against the Stroh's best pitcher, the future Hall of Famer, and you were still only able to muster five runs over the last two days, and, and both of them coming up on the short end of the stick. So you take tomorrow off, get a little bit more healthy, which is certainly something that this team needs to do. We didn't see McNeil all series here in Houston after he aggravated that hamstring injury back on Monday at City Field and you know you need this team certainly to continue to have at least a little bit better luck than they've had in the first couple of months with the injuries at least to the pitching staff because today Carlos Carrasco not only did he not have it he also left the game in the third inning because of what the team says is lower back tightness and you know the the funny thing about Carlos Carrasco you know, he's got the numbers. He's got a nice stat line so far this year. He's 8-3. and three, He's got a 4-4-2. You know, he's, by all accounts, that's a decent year. But it just seems like he's a hard guy to really go all in and just buy into and say, this is the guy that we're going to need in the month of October. This is the guy that is going to have to pitch some big-time baseball for us in whatever playoff series we get ourselves into. And I don't necessarily think that's the truth. I'm, I'm not... I'm not the biggest Carlos Carrasco guy because the book on him was, and as soon as you know he was included in part of that trade for Francisco Lindor last year, like I know a couple of people in Cleveland that watched him play, you know, for the better part of his career when he was a member of the ball club out there. And the thing they said about Carlos Carrasco was is that he's somebody who, you know, things are cruising along, you know, maybe one time, one and a half, two times through the batting order, but then all of a sudden he loses it. And what happens is that he stops all of a sudden having faith in his stuff and having faith in his out pitches and really relying upon those too much to where he's almost hesitant 
like, you know, the bottom is just going to completely fall out. Even though things have been going good so far, and even though I'm making the pitches I need to to be able to get through innings and to limit the workload of the bullpen, he, he just somehow, and that's like a mental thing, just somehow lets that all go and just does not have that utmost faith in his ability to execute the pitches in the same way that he's been doing it, you know, the first five, six innings of a game. But today he didn't really have a chance to get into that type of a quandary because that Astros lineup, which is good, you know, it's as good as anybody's, led, of course, by Jordan Alvarez. They made quick work of him in that first inning where he was basically serving up batting practice. You know, Bregman hits a home run. Alvarez hits a home run. Alvarez also goes deep a little bit later on in this game. And think about Jordan Alvarez. You know, Jordan Alvarez is going to have a season here, which kind of reminds me of what Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had last year for the Toronto Blue Jays, in that it was so good, it was so off the charts. However, there was another guy right now, or there was another guy who had himself an even better year in Shohei Otani, and so there was no way that Vlad could win the MVP because you had Otani, who was playing like a video game character last season. And I think the same thing applies to Alvarez this year. Alvarez is having a great year. You know, could still steal an MVP award this season, but I still think you got to defer to the Aaron Judges of the world and to Jose Ramirez for Cleveland. Those guys, I would give them a little slight notch above Joran Alvarez up until this point. But the dude's a beast. The dude can rake. And he got the better of the Mets today on a couple of occasions, and they lose this one 5-3. to three. So Carrasco leaves with lower back tightness. Don't know necessarily how significant it is for him. And, you know, the shame of it is, is that you're waiting for this starting rotation to actually be healthy for a change, right? You're waiting for this, this rotation to actually be able to go one through five, go out there, give this team a big lift, and, and they have yet to be able to put that all together so far this season. Obviously, because Max Scherzer is one that is on his way back, you hope maybe as soon as this weekend, but as he's about ready to come back now, you got a guy who's maybe walking out the door and maybe requires a stint on the injured list in Carlos Carrasco. We'll see. Like I said, they're calling it lower back tightness. Don't know if it's, you know, something to where he's going to require a trip on the IL, where he's maybe even going to have to skip his next start. Still no way of knowing, but it doesn't change the fact that it was an ugly couple of days here for this team, and it's, it's one of them you just want to get over with as soon as possible, get out of Dodge, get out of Houston, and just completely be done with this club. And really, that's all it comes down to for the way that they played. You realize the last time, they said this on the broadcast last night, the last time the Mets won a game in Houston, the Astros were still a member of the National League, and it was back in 2011. That's how much time flies, and I know the Mets don't go there every year. Used to is, you know, when Houston was in the NL, and you remember them going to the Astrodome, and not just the epic playoff series in 1986, but you thought that they would make at least um, a few more trips in there, and at the very least, how about winning a game, but unable to get it done, unable to accomplish it this time around, and we'll see if their fate is a little bit better as they move on to Miami to take on a Marlins team, which, you know, depending on what pitcher you get on any given day, they can cause some problems for you here. So that's the Mets situation. Still sitting pretty, still in first place, still no reason to sound the alarm, sound the panic button. I, I think they'll still be fine. I know that Atlanta's been playing some good ball here. They got the Giants again tonight. Braves lost last night in a wacky one down there at Truist Park against the San Francisco Giants. Yankees, meantime, they're just getting ready to get started with Jordan Montgomery on the hill against the Tampa Bay Rays. Tampa Bay finds a way to win last night's ball game and hands the Yankees their 17th defeat 
uh, 18th defeat, excuse me, of the season, which is still unheard of, that we played, you know, 68 games are in, and the Yankees are 50 and 18. Just incredible, incredible clip that they have been playing at here so far to begin 2022. And, you know, for their sake, you want them to continue winning games because you want to scratch across one of those playoff spots and get that wrapped up as soon as possible. So maybe you can start to have one eye on the playoffs, what you have to do, per se, to put your team in the best position to get back to that elusive, elusive World Series, which, you know, it's been a long time since they were able to get to that fall classic. Got to go back to 2009 to remember when that was. So we'll keep our eyes on the baseball here as we move on forward through the program, especially with the Yankees. You got game three of the Stanley Cup final, or not game three, game four of the Stanley Cup finals coming up tonight is, you know, improbably, maybe the Tampa Bay Lightning have one more run in them. And I'm not saying that they're going to win four straight just like they did against the Rangers in the Eastern Conference finals, but hey, they get this one tonight. It's a brand new series. It's going to be 2 2. You're going to start to see, like, eerie connections to the last round against New York where they lost the first two games, won the next four, and that's why they're playing for the Stanley Cup final. I, I'd really be surprised, you know, how this one is going to play itself out tonight. And really, I'm surprised to see what Colorado will do in net. You know, are you going to turn to Pavel Fransos and see if he could take you home, the guy who, you know, was basically backstopping you to the Stanley Cup final during – the last round against the Edmonton Oilers. We'll see what uh, Jared Bednar and company have up their sleeves with game number four tonight. Abs are still in control, of course, but Tampa wins this game tonight on the home ice. We got a 2-2, best out of three, and may the best team win as the Lightning try to win a third consecutive Stanley Cup. But for us, closer to home, it's an NBA draft coming up in about 24 hours from Barclays Center in Brooklyn. And as far as we're concerned, what are the Knicks going to do, right? We hear all the rumblings. We hear all the rumors. We hear all the reports about maybe things that they have their eyes on and players that they can look to incorporate into already the young talent pool that they have on this basketball team. Now, Jay Nivey is like the flavor of the month, right? He's the guy that a lot of these teams certainly covet and certainly teams that, you know, are picking in the top five, six of this draft because if the Knicks stand pat at 11 and don't make any moves, which for all intents and purposes still could be a realistic scenario, but if they don't, then you're having to talk about a team that may have to give up an arm and a leg to move up and get the guy that they want. And as we were talking about last night, like I am not so convinced right now that Sacramento is a willing and eager partner to trade down in the first round of this draft. Like, like, what incentive does Sacramento have, right? What do they possibly accomplish from moving down? What, to get a few more assets? Try to build up that franchise, a franchise which hasn't won anything in almost like 20 years? That's how bad it's been for the Sacramento Kings? And if you're a Knicks fan, I mean, I'll put the question out there right now. You're a Knicks fan. Do you really think that it's worthwhile to sacrifice everything what the asking price is going to entail? Whether that means first-round pick, first-round picks, plural, right? I would lean towards the latter that they're going to command at least multiple draft choices. Maybe, just maybe, one or two of your young talent core when you, you know, mention the names Manuel Quickly, Obi Toppin, you know, Cam Reddish, Quentin Grimes, guys like that. I mean, that's what any club 
that the Knicks decide to do business with, that's probably what they're going to be asking for. So you have to really negotiate that question within yourself and say, how eager are we to make this move? Like, what could we possibly do to get up there and get a guy that we covet maybe a little bit more than even for the value and the sake of just being patient? Because if the Knicks stand pat at 11, I don't think that a Jaden Ivey, for example, is going to drop that far. I just can't see it. So if that is indeed the guy that they are locked in on and they are targeting and they want to bring to Madison Square Garden and they think that he could be you know, one of the great saviors of New York basketball, then by all means do it. Right? By all means, give up the draft choices. Right? Try to work with Sacramento for what they need. Because if you think Jay Ivey's got a better future and a higher ceiling and is going to be more fundamental to the Knicks' turnaround than, let's say, one of those other young guys that I mentioned, do it. Trust your staff. Trust your scouts. And go get this baby done. It's as simple as that. You know, you've got to believe that the guy you're targeting is a difference maker. This isn't about, oh, let's just move up in the draft because even though we don't necessarily love a guy, I think that if we bring him in, it's not all that bad. Like, we could do worse. You don't want to settle, right? It's the New York Yankees. Like, you, it's, you don't settle. You go, and, you go and attack, right? Get the guy you want. That's what this thing is all about. And is Jaden Ivey the answer? Who knows? You know, you're not going to base this off of just strictly what you saw at Purdue or what he did in workouts or, you know, what he promises to be. You know, and, and this goes for any player, for that matter. Any player. They come to the NBA. They go into the wrong system. They fall into an unstable organization. Coaches are getting fired left and right. Players are changing hands. How is that going to be conducive to their growth and development? So no matter what guy you bring in, you got to make sure you have your house in order first. And I give credit to the people in charge there with the Knicks and Leon Rose and his staff. They do a nice job. They've done a nice job as far as that's concerned. The drama and all that, like, we're not hearing as much about that. But get a guy, no matter where it is, whether it's four, whether it's five, whether it's 11, no matter where you think he's going to end up, you get a guy that's going to bring in and help you win. Because I don't know too many fans, and certainly... Folks in that front office, they want to experience the same darn thing that this team dealt with a year ago when they had to take that step back, right? When they weren't a playoff team and they had to watch everybody else play in April and May. Coming off of a four seed in the conference. Tough pill to swallow. Really, it truly is. Hey, all season long, listen to 98.7 ESPN for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. It's brought to you by Nissan. Nissan's an easier choice than ever with their exciting and fuel-efficient lineup. Now, get great offers across their full line. Shop at your local Nissan store and NissanUSA.com. We're off and running here on a busy Wednesday. It's Dan Crossan with you on 98.7 ESPN. Jam-packed program for you on the docket. Xavier Scruggs, a little baseball, a little bit later on in the show. Kenny Albert talking about the life of times of Tony Saragusa. And our pal Chris Patola of ESPN, college basketball analyst, will join us 
little bit, uh, well, about 10 minutes from now or so, and we'll do a little NBA draft and, you know, some of the guys we could be zeroing in on, not just for the Knicks, but, hey, you never know. Whether a trade is made, whether a trade isn't made, anything, it, it, regardless, um, promises to be exciting. And, look, everybody you talk to, everybody that you, you know, you pick their brain about how things can shake out tomorrow, and, and it's an inexact science, right? That's the beauty of it. We have no idea how this thing is going to go. You could be excited. I mean, think about what just happened with the NFL draft. And I know that maybe it's a little bit different formulaic-wise than, than the NBA, but did anybody think that, you know, the Jets were going to make out as well as they did on that first night, you know, trading back into that first round to get themselves a third first-round prospect. You know, the Giants able to land the two players that they walked away with when they did without having to maneuver here. Maybe, you know, if the Knicks aren't able to work out a deal, that's that I think is an important question here. Because if you're asking me right now, and again, I want to hear from you at 800-919-3776, like if you think it's critical for them to actually move heaven and earth to go give up a player, like do you want to give up draft capital? Do you want to have to give up draft capital and, oh, by the way, a young player or two just to move up and get a guy that may or may not pan out? Like, I'm still of the belief that if you ask me, what are we, 20... 24 and a half hours away from the start of the draft. If you ask me, they moving up, they stand and pat. Like, what's the likelier of the two options for the New York Knicks? I actually think that they're standing pat. Like, I think they're going to be picking at 11. And is that the worst thing in the world? Well, maybe it's a little disappointing right now. Because all these rumors get thrown out there. Right, about how aggressive they're trying to be and how they're working the phones and they're trying to move up because they got their eye on, you know, Jaden Ivey. Jaden Ivey the other night is talking about how he, you know, has he would love to play in New York and he thinks that it's a good fit and and blah, 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 blah. So you're getting your heart set and you're getting your eyes on this one player, but you know, there's no guarantee that Jaden Ivey is indeed going to be a sure thing on the next level. You know, there's no guarantee that. He'll indeed even be a fit for the New York Knicks. We just don't know. And what happens if, let's just say, for argument's sake, that the Knicks stay at 11, and there's going to be a guy that falls down to them who turns out to be a stud, who turns out to be a gem? What if he ends up being the steal of the draft? Do you ever think of that for a second? I, I mean, I understand, like, historically, that doesn't really happen all that often. Like, the Knicks don't get that lucky. But it could happen. It could happen. And one thing that's pretty consistent, no matter how you look at things here, no matter who you talk to, there's some good depth to this draft. At least in terms of the lottery, you know, the first maybe 10 to 15 picks, there's some pretty good prospects there. And if one of those guys are, you know, the Knicks might have two or three guys that they really, really like that are right in their lap at number 11. And then what do you do? Then you got to make sure you pick the best guy. But, you know, we, we, we tossed around a couple of those names last night, and, you know, we'll run them by Spatola when he comes on here in a couple of minutes. Like, let's just say they're staying at 11. And, you know, you have somebody like one of the Dukies, A.J. Griffin. A.J. Griffin's a hell of a shooter. Like, A.J. Griffin is a guy who automatically becomes maybe the best three-point shooter on your basketball team. And you know what this game is all about. You know how this game is played. 
this NBA game, you know, in its current form, it's all about spacing, spacing the floor. It's about taking that shot, you know. A.J. Griffin is a guy who's pops, knows a thing or two about, you know, working with Tom Thibodeau and that sort of thing, but A.J. Griffin doesn't play any defense. You know, guys like that. You know, Johnny Davis, what about him, the kid from Wisconsin? I think he's a little raw, to be quite honest with you. You know, um, and Johnny Davis don't shoot it all that great from three. But, you know, he's one of those intangible type players. He's not a guy you're going to give him the ball and say, all right, get me 25 points a game and and, and take us home. That's not going to happen. You know, maybe Keegan Murray falls into that category a little bit more. Another big tenor from Iowa. Got the tools, got the skills, but, you know, like with anything, you got to get these guys in the right system to where, number one, they're going to have a stable environment. Number two, they're going to be coached up to where they need to be coached up, to where you get the best out of them and maximize their potential. That's where it falls on Tom Thibodeau and his staff, and that's why the coaching staff is going to have an incredible amount of say as to, hopefully, what direction the Knicks go in. I mean, Trading, uh, you know, trading picks, trading players, whatever, moving up to, you know, crack the top five, and that's easy. Then, then, then that's easy. Once you're there, it's like you got everything you could possibly want. Because in a lot of ways, I think the draft starts at four. Because I would be stunned, as we were talking about last night, I would be stunned, call it a major upset, major surprise, if the top three picks in this draft are not those three bigs in any order you want to put them, whether it's Paulo Banquero, um, Jabari Smith and Chet Holmgren, right? Those three guys are coming off the board in some order. Then what happens? And more importantly for us, is it going to be the Knicks that are sitting there at number four once that club is on the clock? We'll find out. I mentioned game four of the Stanley Cup Finals tonight. You know what? It's underway, and it didn't take Tampa Bay long To get right on the board first, how about 36 seconds into the festivities tonight? The Lightning on the board first, 1-0 over the Colorado Avalanche. So, obviously, still a long way to go, but the Bolts really going to do it again? Are they going to go on one of these crazy runs like they did against the Rangers in the last round, lose the first two, and then just, like, become a dominant force the rest of the series and, and, and completely hunker down the opponent. I mean, let's see if they get through this game, but hey, you couldn't ask for a better start. Less than a minute into action, you get on the board first and the place is going crazy. Win this game, then you got a best two out of three for Lord Stanley the rest of the way. So we'll uh, keep you up to date as to what's happening uh, down there in Tampa Bay. Thanks again to Kenny for coming on. I mean, I don't know how many guys would take time out of their vacation to, to come on and do a spot like that. So appreciate Kenny. He's one of the real good dudes uh, in our business. Good friend. And, you know, just to kind of echo some of the things he was saying about Tony Saragusa, he was, you know, he was a Jersey guy through and through. Uh, remember, he had a cameo in The Sopranos. He was um, in one of those episodes. He owned a couple of restaurants um, in the state. I think it was um, Tiffany's Restaurants. Um, I, I remember going to him a couple of times, kind of in my neck of the woods growing up. Pizza Place, for example, a pizzeria that that I would frequent. Um you know, near where I grew up, because like I said, he was kind of from that same area. I remember, I always remember they had an autographed picture of, of Sarah Goose on the wall, like in the pizzeria. And it was one, it was like an old faded um, picture of him, like in an Indianapolis Colts thing in the first part of his career. So that was before, of course, he went to Baltimore. 
but just really, really, really sad. And, you know, his legacy is going to be, you know, the, the announcing, of course, and you know, as, you know, a, a pretty, pretty visible run stuffer in the National Football League uh, for a decade. You know, think about what the average career is in sports, right? Think about, uh, what, three years, three years and change. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, played a very physically demanding position, and he did it for, what, 11, 12 years. That is a, a hell of a run, and he got a Super Bowl ring out of it, you know, and he's going to be remembered as, you know, being a member of one of the, you know, top defensive teams in, in NFL history in that 2000 Ravens team. You know, I think, you know, 85 Bears to me is still the, the cream of the crop. That's, that's the gold standard. You know, what those guys did, it's, it's never going to be duplicated. Um, 85 Bears, you know, the 2,000 Ravens. This is in my lifetime, at least. You know, obviously, you could go back to, like, the Steel Curtain Steelers in the 70s and, and that sort of thing. But the 85 Bears, 2,000 Ravens, I would say, probably number two. And then you can even, you know, that 86 Giants defense was pretty darn special. The 2002 Tampa Bay unit that won a Super Bowl under John Gruden, you know, with all the Hall of Famers on that defense, Warren Sapp and John Lynch and Derek Brooks. And, you know, you had Simeon Rice there, Rondé Barber, you know, you had a ton of dudes uh, on that defense. Those would be the ones that stand out and resonate maybe a little bit more than any others. But, you know, it got to a point in 2000 with that Ravens team to where they were probably the closest thing that came along after the 85 Bears to that almost gave you a, sim- a similar feel. That when you stepped on the field, there was like no chance in, in hell that you were even going to be able to fathom putting like double digits on the scoreboard. And look, everybody remembers... What happened to the Giants in that Super Bowl in 2000 against the Baltimore Ravens? You know, Giants only put up a touchdown, and it was on a kick return. It was a a complete annihilation. Remember, a Giants team that put up 40-plus points on the Minnesota Vikings a couple of weeks before in the NFC Championship game at the Meadowlands, and then they played that Baltimore team in the Super Bowl and couldn't do anything. And it was almost like men against boys. Like, they just – it was like a video game where the other team, the defense, like, knew the play – like they were in the offensive team's huddle. Like they, they knew what was coming, and, and they just did not have a shot to really do anything there. And that's how it was like late in the year. You, you could not get anything going on that defense. Like I remember, you know, and, and Jet fans might remember this, in 2000, last game of the season, that was the season that Al Groh was the head coach of the Jets. He was a one-and-done just in 2000. But the Jets went into Baltimore, on Christmas Eve in 2000, they were 9-6, and six, and it was one of those classic, like, win-and-you're-in type games. All they had to do was beat the Ravens. I know, easier said than done. Beat the Ravens, and you make the playoffs. Lose, and you'd go home. Christmas Eve, and the Ravens, if I'm not mistaken, they had already clinched the playoff berth. Like, they didn't have anything to play for. They were already in. Um, and the Jets actually came out on fire. Like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Jets got out to a 14-0 lead in the first quarter. They scored two touchdowns. The offense went right up and down the field on that Ravens defense. I mean, there was like a trick play involved, like a flea flicker. Um, and you thought that, wow, maybe they're just going to catch this team napping and they're going to go ahead and win this game and make the playoffs. Well, lo and behold, the Ravens woke up, that defense woke up, and they finally started to play football. You know, Testaverde got picked off, you know, a handful of times the rest of the way, including the backbreaker, which was a pick six that he threw 
right before halftime, Chris McAllister was the guy who took it almost the distance of the field. Like the Jets were, you know, knocking on the door in the red zone, and, and McAllister picks off Vinny and, and then takes it back to the house, and that just totally changed the complexion of the game. You had Jermaine Lewis, who was their kick returner at the time. He uh, returned, I think it was either a kick or a punt, um, all the way back for a touchdown in that second half, and it just steamrolled and steamrolled, and, you know, before you know it, Jets lost. The uh, season was over. The head coach resigned at the end of the year. Much to the surprise of everybody, and the Ravens went on that crazy run as a wild card team, remember, wild card team, and went all the way and won that Super Bowl and beat the New York Giants uh, down there in Tampa Bay. Tremendous defense, intimidating, uh, just whatever word you want to use to describe it. And, you know, he was a big part of it, Saragusa. And, uh, you know, personality, and as you heard from Kenny there, just genuine guy, good dude. And, uh, like I said, thoughts and prayers to his family on the uh, way to way too early loss at the age of 55. 800-919-3776, that is the telephone number. We come back a little bit later on, actually. We're going to talk some baseball with Xavier Scruggs of ESPN, MLB Network, Um, talk about the locals and where this baseball season is heading as we get ready to turn into the month of July, get ready to approach the All-Star break and uh, the midway point and all those things, maybe what these teams have to do to kind of beef up for a pen and push. Yankees are having a rough go of it tonight in Tampa against the Rays again. All of a sudden, you know, that Yankee starting pitching is running on fumes a little bit. Last night, Cortez. Tonight, it's Jordan Montgomery. And the Rays are on the verge of maybe breaking this one open here in the fourth inning. They got a 4-1 lead. 800-919-3776. Our telephone number at Dan Gross at G-R-A-C-A is the telephone number. 4-1 Tampa Bay on top of the Yankees in the fifth inning. Down at the trop, Yanks still threatening here with the bases loaded, seeing if they can get themselves a little bit closer. Mets played this afternoon, as we told you, a rough afternoon down in Houston. Looked like it was going to be a heck of a lot worse when you fall behind 4 nothing in the first inning. I mean, Carlos Carrasco just did not have it today, but, you know, give them credit. They were able to get their way back into the game, you know, uh, had the tying run up at the dish on a couple of occasions in the later innings, Dom Smith and Eduardo Escobar, but they were unable to push through. And so they take a two-run defeat into the off day tomorrow down there in Miami and South Beach, and they'll take on the Marlins coming up on Friday as they get back into the division. I- I'm not going to sweat these games. I- I'm really not. Would you like to have beaten the Astros? Sure. You know, when you looked at how the series lined up and the fact that Houston, you know, was not even going to be pitching Justin Verlander in any of those games, in either of the two games, and you say, all right, great, you know, maybe you got a shot, but it just didn't happen. You know, the Mets didn't pitch as well as you would have liked to have seen here, and Carrasco had to depart this game with some lower back tightness. He spoke about it afterwards regarding what the level of concern was. Uh, your level of concern with the back? I'm um, not concerned. I think I'm going to be fine. We just just waiting for tomorrow, and then we go from there. You know, you don't want it to be anything significant because, you know, Max Scherzer, all intents and purposes, he's going to be back in the mix here. Maybe as early as this weekend. See, the Mets are playing coy. They don't want to come out and admit it because, God forbid, they give the Marlins any sort of gamesmanship uh, advantage or, you know, they actually give the Marlins a heads up who's pitching so they could prepare and scout and put together a game plan to maybe help them steal the win. But 
look, I'd be surprised right now if Max Scherzer is not going to be pitching this weekend in one of these games, right? That's everything we've been led to believe. I mean, he came out of that start okay last night in Binghamton, so you got to feel confident that he's going to get back on the mound. So as Scherzer's getting ready to come back, last thing you want to have then is losing another pitcher in Carrasco. So you hope you take him at his word that he's going to be okay and – I don't know, maybe. Is he going to miss a start? Is that the worst thing that's going to come of this thing with the lower back? Who knows? But you want to start to see a real legitimate rotation here, right? I mean, like, not musical chairs. This guy's out, this guy's in. You want to have the five pitchers that you thought were going to be there at the beginning of the season and really what on paper stacked up to be one of the strengths for this baseball team. So, of course, you know, Buck Showalter was – bombarded with that question about you know what Max Scherzer's weekend is going to look like down in Florida will he pitch will he not so this was the manager's answer to that I think that's the plan I, I, I was getting ready Billy wanted me to call him after the game I told him I had to call, talk to y'all first you know, I, I talked to him before I came I'm gonna call him back and that's one of the subjects we're going to talk about well I, I would hope that it would come up and you know what I not that Buck is one of these guys who's going to sit there and try to mislead the media by any stretch. I think Buck's done a good job in that department. Um, you know, he knows how to play the game. And that's why I thought he would be such a home run hire for this job because he did this for a living last couple of years, like doing the TV stuff and doing the media. He knows how to deal with the New York marketplace, not only just having managed the New York Yankees once upon a time, but, you know, doing the media side of things, like looking at it from another perspective. I think maybe you gain a different appreciation for the job that they do and for, you know, the questions that you keep getting bombarded with. Like Buck Showalter, what was this, uh, you know, 30 years ago, that Buck Showalter, when he was managing the New York Yankees and he's a younger guy, you know, one of the youngest managers in baseball, maybe the youngest manager at the time, he maybe didn't have that same relationship with the media. You know, he was a little bit more guarded back then because he still really had not had a lifetime of being a manager in Major League Baseball. And those are something that you learn over time. But now it's a different guy. I mean, you've seen how he is in his press conferences all season. He's fantastic. You know, he's, he's engaging. He's funny. And I think you have to be that way. And God forbid if you start losing games... Unless they want to throw you to, you know, to prevent yourself from being thrown to the Sharks, you almost have to get on their good side a little bit and play their game to a certain degree. But the fact that the Mets are winning games, you don't have to resort to that stuff. So he's still going out and being a little bit more open. I think the fans appreciate that. I don't know if it's necessarily doing wonders for the media, but we'll see. Lonnie in Long Island up next here on 98.7 ESPN. Hey, Lonnie, what's going on? How's it going tonight? What's up, Lonnie? Well, what's happening? Everything, everything's good. I'm just a little annoyed. My Yankees, I love the Yankees. I've been rooting them for them for years. But, you know, the Yankees, you know, Boone, they do the same thing. I'm just not happy. They don't score runs. They don't hit. They strike out too much. I mean, Judge just swung out of pitch. The base is loaded, and he's swinging out of a pitch. A foot out of the strike zone. Come on, if you just walk, you get a run. I mean, they just don't get runs. When it comes down to the playoffs, when the pitching gets better, the Yankees are going to have a hard time if they don't get no contact hitters. You got Stanton, Judge, they all these gallo, all these guys strike out. They need some contact hitter. They need some in the lineup. Lonnie, I'll tell you, you what. 
I'll tell you what. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you what. I'll meet yeah. you. I'll meet you halfway with what you're saying. And, okay. and I thank you for the phone call. I'll meet you halfway. Now, the one half I can't meet you is that they're 50 and 18. You know what I mean? Like, the last thing that anybody wants to hear right now is a Yankee fan complaining about, like, first world problems with the Yankees. Right? You're 50 and 18. They lost one lousy, stinking game last night. And they're losing this evening. Okay, oh, my God. Two losses in a row. Is that the worst thing in the world that could happen here to the Yankees? They actually lose back-to-back games. The sky is falling. Fire Boone, fire Cashman. Get rid of everybody. Trade Judge, he's a bum, right? He's greedy. He's overrated. He's asking for way too much money. He strikes out with the bases loaded. Get him the hell out of here. I kid, of course. Lonnie is on to something because he knows exactly what's happened to this Yankee team in the playoffs in years past, is that when they come up against better pitching in the playoffs, this lineup, despite how many runs they scored during the regular season, despite how many home runs they hit during the regular season, sometimes those bats go cold in October. But I don't look at this Yankee team as one that's as reliant on the home run ball as maybe some other additions of the New York Yankees have been. I really and truly don't. Now, could they go out and use a little bit more of a, a you know, a, a guy who is a little bit more consistent in terms of May? Like, the Mets lineup is more suited for October than the Yankees right now. They are, because the Mets grind out at bats. Mets make contact. Mets put the ball in play at a higher rate than the Yankees do. That's undisputable. 2-1 Tampa Bay over Colorado. That's game four of the Stanley Cup Finals. That's happening right now. They're about midway through the second period. You know, if Tampa can hang on and win this game, getting interesting, getting that thing back to 2-2, and we play best two out of three, see if the Bolts have uh, one last push in them, see if they can cement Stanley Cup number three in a row. Before we get to the phones here for a second, just like I I am literally amazed, flabbergasted, astonished, flummoxed, whatever word you want to use to describe it. Kevin Durant's like one of the top, mm, like currently top five players in the world. He's the top, one of the top five players currently practicing, currently active at his current profession in the world, world. And I really just can't understand for the life of me why or why he decides to engage on, like, the cat and mouse game with people on social media. And, you know, calling out other folks, taking the bait from everyone, and, you know, responding to their criticisms or negativities and this and that, and, you know, getting into those beefs with the likes of Charles Barkley and our boy Carlin, for crying out loud, he replied to him, even though it wasn't malicious, but still replied. Forget about the burner accounts. I mean, I don't know how many burner accounts he has. We know there's probably a few of those that are... uh hovering around the Twitter sphere. But, like, it really centers on, and, and I don't know how this came about, to be honest with you. First of all, like, if you're KD, like, just, just you don't need this. Like, y- you don't need this smoke. You, it, It's not worth your time. To me, only bad things can happen. Like, your legacy should be secure. At least it is to me. 
anybody who's watched his career, anybody who's watched the last, you know, 15 years in the NBA, I mean, like, what more does Kevin Durant have to prove? But some, because of one, like, innocuous comment that was floated out on television or something about, you know, he needs to be the alpha male of a championship team or, or whatever the heck it is that, you know, Barkley said on TV. You know what? Barkley's entitled to his opinion. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to disagree with it. But why would somebody like KD get all worked up over this? Like, if you go back, like, what more does this guy have to accomplish? And I think that the reason maybe this whole thing has legs and even still is something that people are willing to discuss was because he left Golden State, a team that had won a couple of championships, and he left for Brooklyn, and Brooklyn has become an absolute disaster. And nothing except a soap opera, nothing except a distraction. But I was old enough to remember when Golden State won those two championships with KD. I'm sure you were, too, if you're listening to the show. You didn't think that was Kevin Durant's team? Like, you didn't think that Kevin Durant was the guy? Even though he was finals MVP, back-to-back years? Like, we're not giving him credit for that? Like, I'll give you another example. How about in 2008 when... The Celtics made those trades, so they made that trade and they brought in Kevin Garnett, they brought in Ray Allen, and they formed the big big three, big four, whatever you want to call it, but mostly, mostly a, a big three, right, with Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen. Even though Paul Pierce was the finals MVP in 2008 when they beat the Lakers, Kevin Garnett was still the best player on those teams. Like, that's what helped push him over the top. Kevin Garnett. Are we going to sit now and look back at that Celtics championship in 08 and think that it wasn't Kevin Durant's team? I know that Paul, uh, Paul Pierce was there already, and he got the finals MVP, but I consider that Kevin Garnett's team. A thousand percent. What happened when LeBron went down to Miami and he won a couple of championships there? Dwayne Wade was still there in Miami. Dwayne Wade had already won a championship a few years before. Finals MVP, remember in 2006, beat Dallas, and that was when he had Shaq on his team. But do we look at those teams and think that they weren't LeBron's teams? There's a real famous story that Dwayne Wade has told many times over. After that first year when they came up short to Dallas in the finals, like they had a conversation that summer. They had a heart-to-heart. Dwayne Wade basically told LeBron, if we want this team to go where it needs to go, you got to take over and be the guy. And so Dwayne Wade, you know, stepped aside to a certain extent. And LeBron took over, became his team. They won a couple of championships, finals MVPs, all those. So, but Dwayne Wade was there. We're not calling it Dwayne Wade's team. It's LeBron's team. So I don't know why anybody would sit there and look at those Warriors clubs for a couple of seasons that KD won finals MVP and try to suggest that he wasn't the best player on that team. You know, Steph Curry took a little bit of a back seat those couple of years, to, to the point where you kind of worried a little bit, like, is Steph okay? Yeah, and is that going to create some friction? And is that a problem? You know, Steph went from scoring roughly 30 points a game before KD got there, to now having those numbers go down to about 25. 
just so KD could get his points too, so KD can eat as well. So why is it such a big deal? Like, why would he feel so slighted? I, uh, for, I, I cannot understand it. 800-919-3776, that's the telephone number. Dino, Staten Island up next here on 98.7. What's up, Dino? How are you? Hey, Dan. Nice hearing you, man. You're great on the radio, I must say, man. You're just a great listen. Um, talk a little Knicks, Dan. Um, yeah. You know, I'm hearing all these. I'm hearing all these rumors. You know, they want to obviously they want to go for a point guard. That's something that's been Achilles' heel for the Knicks for a long time. You know, they're looking at Brunson. Brunson's mediocre at best. I will never pay him twenty-five million dollars a year. If Mark Cuban wants to give him twenty-four, twenty-five million a year, please, they can have him. He averages eight points a game. He had a he had a yes. He had a great playoffs for Dallas. You're gonna award somebody twenty-five million for having a a good playoff? Stop it. Same thing goes for Brogdon. I don't want Brogdon. They're offering him an eleventh pick. What, what are we gonna do with him? He's always hurt. It's time for the Knicks to keep develop, developing their young players. It's time for the Knicks to give IQ a chance to start. Every time he's got an opportunity to start, he's produced. If he got 32, his metrics say if he gets around 32 minutes a game, he will be average around 18 points, five rebounds, and five assists. The problem is, is the problem is, is the coach. He's so stubborn with playing his vets. Finally, at the end of the season last year, he decided to let go of the rope a little bit and let the young guys play a little bit. You know, I love Randall too. A lot of people get a, uh, you know, they get they get they get on Randall too much, but people forget that Randall. Even on a terrible year last year, still averaged 20 points, 10 rebounds, and five assists. Do you know the only two players in the league that averaged that were Jokic and Embiid? But he gets all the rap because, you know, Knicks had a bad year. But the year before that, Randall was a top five player. So we need to stop about trying to get rid of Randall. We need to keep developing him. He's only 26 years old. People got to remember keep the young core the way they are, keep developing Barrett. Keep the, bring back Mitchell Robinson. Get, hopefully we can develop his offensive game a little bit. Quentin Grimes, he showed promise also. They got such a young nucleus, and that, that's what they need to do. Stop bringing in guys that had decent playoffs and overpay. We've done this so many times as Knicks fans. We overpaid for guys, and we get stuck with these enormous contracts that we can never shed. What do you, do you think know, about that? Dino, I don't disagree with anything you just said. Really. I, I do not disagree with a word you just said, and I thank you for the phone call, and you get back to me. Um, I'll give you an example. Jalen Brunson. Jalen, look, Jalen Brunson's a good player, nice player. But his breakout came, came in these playoffs, right? That was his breakout campaign in the postseason. So now, just because you got some money, potentially, potentially, burning a hole in your wallet, it doesn't mean you got to go throw it, throw it at a guy who may or may not be available and who may or may not continue this upside, or maybe that was just too small of a sample size that is never going to really play itself out. Let me. You want to go in the time machine here for a second? You remember back, and I can't believe I'm bringing this up, but it, it, it still resonates. Yeah, thank you. I need that. I need that. It still resonates like it happened five minutes ago because I was there. This was about like 15 years ago when Isaiah was still running the Knicks. Once upon a time, oh yeah, I know, I know. I didn't, I, I, look, 
for factual purposes, I brought his name up just for the purpose of telling the story to make sure all the characters are covered. That's why I said it. One summer, do you remember the Knicks signed a guy by the name of Jerome James? Oh, you guys geez. remember that? You remember that? He was a big from the Seattle Supersonics. That's how long ago it was. Like it was, you know, Seattle was still a team. The previous year in the playoffs, right? With Seattle, he had a breakout campaign. He averaged like 17 and 10 in the postseason for the Sonics the previous year. Like, this is a guy who did nothing in the regular season. Like, nothing. I mean, wh- I mean at least Jalen Brunson shows up during the regular season. This guy literally did nothing. But yet, just for that month, he played the best basketball maybe that he could ever play in his life, and he put up really good numbers in the playoffs. He became available. Isaiah threw a bunch of money at him. They signed him to a multi-year deal. I'll never forget, I was covering the press conference. And, and, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing, what I was hearing, and all of those things. And I, The cookies were very good, though. I do remember the cookies were good that they served the media. I, I remember those. I enjoyed those. But needless to say, Jerome James did nothing with the Knicks. Nothing. And not necessarily trying to link the two by saying that Jalen Brunson's going to follow him in those footsteps, but I just don't believe in throwing a bunch of money at a guy who flashed his best basketball during a way too short sample size, and we may never see that level again. And I don't think a guy like Jerome James is a program changer. He's not somebody that's going to elevate the guys around him to where you become much better as a basketball team. He is a nice complimentary piece. Right? A nice to good complimentary piece. He's not a number one. He's not a number two. And you're really just going to throw some money at this guy because he had a few good games in the playoffs and, oh, by the way, he's available? Maybe. That's not good roster building. 